Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hi. Hello. Welcome back to Old Millennials, a deep dive on shallow topics from the late 90s and early 2000s. I'm one of your hosts, Emily. And I'm Margo. Today, we're talking about a pair of films that we still love dearly, one of which, until recently, was unavailable for streaming or purchase for almost two decades. Well, not unless you're me. I had the VHS. Very jealous <laughs> of that. Those two movies, and by the way, that would be worth keeping a VCR. Yeah, it became increasingly difficult as the years went on, <laughs> but, but our friend John does have a VHS player, so it Amazing. lives. Amazing. Those two movies are Drop Dead Gorgeous and Best in Show, which have both garnered huge cult followings because of their near-perfect tone in the mockumentary satire. I mean, looking back, I'm so excited I got to rewatch Drop Dead Gorgeous in its entirety. The last 15 or so years, I think apart from it maybe being on TV once in a while, I would just... I would say that it didn't really, yeah, oddly right. enough, I never really caught it on TV. I think maybe... Like Cinemax. A, I was going to say a brief stay on like a Cinemax or a Showtime, right, right, but right. not... Not that I know of. I mean, it kind of gets into it in the BuzzFeed article, but not really that much of what happened to its streaming rights and, like, why it was so difficult to find it in wider print. Because for a while, it was... You couldn't even find it on Amazon, like, right. to purchase the DVD. That was pretty insane, like, in this day and age where you can find just about any way to, like, stream something that movies... You know, in the world of Criterion Collection, I do believe this movie be deserves its own, like... It will eventually get it, but doesn't it... So. It needs... I forget how old it needs to be. It's, like, presidential. It, it, it needs to be a certain age before it gets... Like, 25 years or something. Well, yeah. it just crossed the 20-year mark in July, which is when it finally came back to Hulu. Thank God. Praise be. Um, uh, I know that I posted about it on the Instagram because I was very stoked. And I was really happy that mostly it held up. I mean, there were some things that were, oh, let's yeah. just say, like, 90s humor. Will Sasso. Uh, yeah, that was problematic. I mean, and also, like, the perv judge. Yeah. But also, like, these, not the Will Sasso thing. That's just a, a bad stereotype. But it's not like these people, like, the pervy judge don't exist in these pageant worlds anyway. So it's not like it's off base. It was just more of the handling. And then in my research... I found out that that poor actor, Matt Malloy, he's like, I get called a pervert in yeah. public a lot. <laughs> but he's like, people stop and point at me and scream perv. Could you imagine? No, I mean, that's probably like what, you know who else deals with that? Probably guest stars on SVU. Like those those people like who are or known. Yeah. apparently, and I only know this because somebody has told me, but the kid who played King Joffrey. Oh, Like yeah. people will come up to him and be like, you're a piece of shit. <laughs> Just... People get so into it, and then That's I think so people true. would go up to um, the brother from um, G Wonder Years, uh, Gian Giancarlo Esposito, gets yeah. yelled at for being Gus. Yeah, <laughs> which is crazy. If you actually thought Gus was Gus, wouldn't you be scared? Wayne from the Wonder Years got punched by a guy at a bar who was oh like, God. "I had a brother like you," and then just like took him out. Yeah. Why don't you go punch your actual brother? Don't punch him. Or get a therapist. Yeah, don't also take out that. Some poor actor. <laughs> Wait, you're right. <laughs> don't punch your brother or an actor. Both will result in assault charges for you, sir. 
I really loved Drop Dead Gorgeous, though. I yeah. thought it, when I watched it, I thought it was one of the funniest things I had ever seen. I think for me, I thought it was, not only did I think it was hilarious, I think for me the real love was that, you know, down the years I slowly met other people who had seen it, the few people who had seen it, and they too could like so furiously quote it like me, just like knowing exactly like every single line. It's just, it's perfect in that respect. Oh, I overused Kristen Dunst's line where she shout whispers at the stage manager, this is, this is Nazi Germany. <laughs> Anytime, like, I would get grounded or be told to take out the trash or even nowadays, I think it in the back of my mind, I just don't say it out loud because it's very melodramatic and, like, white girl problems, but I, I hear her in a stage whisper in the back of my head, this is Nazi Germany. And the first time I said that to my dad, he was like, the fuck are you saying? Just take out the fucking trash. Stop complaining. But that's what's so perfect about this movie. It's just like these quotes. Like, I still think of mom still cries when she sees a tilt-a-whirl or a fat lady in a tube top. My other favorite is most smartest. Most oh, most smartest. smartest. Why don't we take a picture of this? <laughs> most smartest. smartest. I got some. <laughs> Again, problematic in men in some ways. In parts. In parts. Well, as I said, the Will Sasso character, and I don't get into him in my portion. Because, no, I don't either. I mean, it's Will Sasso, he is on Mad TV, and now he's, you know, part of, like, the Paul, Paul Blart mall cop canon, and what's there to really even say about any of that? But I thought that the part where he gets his overalls stuck in the pickup truck, and then he, like, terrorizes these kids is probably my favorite part. And I takes did, the ice cream cone. Mm-hmm. And he's like, he's like holding him like a, a headlock, but he still offers him some. See, he's nice. <laughs> just, he doesn't, don't push him. He's stuck in the pickup truck. Just help him. This movie was released on July 23rd, 1999. It is directed by Michael Patrick Jan or Jan. I did not check the pronunciation there. Um, and was written by Lona Williams and produced by Gavin Pallone. We will find out that that relationship was not, unfortunately, as great as this movie. There was a lot of trouble not drama per se on set but just a lot of disagreements as to the execution of the movie and then ultimately its release and reception well the release then reception well the release is mostly the studio's fault yes. the way that it was approached approached during shooting or the way that was the script was interpreted was the director's fault who by the way of course fuck it i didn't know like a 26 year old jackass was the person responsible even present day he kind of seems like an asshole still so i could see where the problems He's were like, i could have been but, a little bit nicer just a little <laughs> bit i was like oh i'm so glad that you accepted three percent responsibility for the problem that you caused and i love her so in that buzzfeed article he's like i was a bit of an asshole and then she uh, um loda williams then says quote he was a bit of an asshole and then says i remember going out in the rain crying going to my rental car like having a full body cry because i felt like oh my god this could get away and not turn out the way i saw it like that is what she, she had to deal she with she also calls him a dick yeah at some point but the thing that i only want to point out before i let you get on with your spiel is uh i think the boldest woodpecker out of all of these dickheads is definitely polone who said that if it wasn't for him producing this movie we would never have gilmore girls because he pitched he thought that annette and amber being so close in age having like a motor mouth close relationship was like really interesting so he pitched it to amy sherman paladino then then they created gilmore girls together which i don't know how much of that is true some of no. it truly sounds like fucking bullshit and that if you told amy sherman paladino that she would be like yeah uh go fuck yourself go fuck yourself Pallone was like probably having this interview a couple of drinks and like say you know i'm gilmore girls i'm gilmore girls <laughs> as i'm rory okay i'm a rory <laughs> check the buzzfeed test again i'm a rory uh, so I'm going to go into just a little, the quick plot because it's like, we, there's no point in going into like this plot because that's what's really interesting about this movie. It does not have a traditional plot, climax, all what have you format. It takes place in 1995. It's a mockumentary of a fake teen princess pageant happening in a small town called Mount Rose in Minnesota. It's sponsored by a Mary K.S. company called Sarah Rose Cosmetics. We get to be introduced to the various players in that pageant, the contestants, the judges, the hosts, the organizers, and the local townspeople. So we have the main players are Gladys Lehman, who is both the organizer of the pageant and the mother to one of the favorite contestants. She was crowned Mount Miss Mount Rose back in her day, and she hopes the same will happen for her daughter. Her it still fits. It still fits those culottes <laughs> i made them myself patent number 4927 ah so good i just love lester he's such a fucking scumbag oh, he's such a scumbag <clears throat> he so his her daughter is becky lehman 
This is Becky and Lehman. Miss Rebecca and Lehman. (laughs) They are a rich family in a small town, and uh, (laughs) their dad owns, uh, Lesser Lehman owns a local furniture store. Sorry, Uh, it sounded like you said Lesser Lehman. (laughs) Well, I mean, he is a little. He is kind of, yeah. He is Uh, lesser to Denise Richards. (laughs) She is obviously thoroughly coached by her mom. The other favorite contestant to win is Amber Atkins and her mother, Annette. She and her mother live in a trailer park, so they are significantly uh, more lower class. Uh, They live and hang out regularly with their friend, a neighbor Loretta, who is a great addition to this castle. Uh, Margo will get into her later. They are the two front runners in this teen princess pageant that everyone is a part of pretty much except for the burnouts at this school and while people are leading up to this pageant people are getting ready a series of mysterious deaths accidents freak what have you start happening a local boy gets killed in a mysterious hunting accident a another front runner contestant tammy curry is killed by way of tractor accident you you know she likes to smoke cigarettes and ride her tractor it helps her relax (laughs) always smoked after riding her dad's tractor And then on top of that, leading up to the event, Amber nearly dodges many times where she could have been killed, including her trailer being set on fire and her mother almost dying from that, switching numbers with a contestant, which which results in a headlight being dropped on a contestant and she is sent to the hospital and her tap costume disappearing. So over time, she's dealing with all this adversity, but still is the favored one to win. After the pageant itself and a very tone-deaf performance of Can't Take My Eyes Off of You that we'll get into later, Becky is named the Miss Mount Rose. However, her title is short-lived as she is killed days later in the victory pageant in a float accident, freak accident, and is there where where Gladys has a meltdown and we find out that in fact, she is responsible for almost trying to kill Amber and for the death of Tammy Curry. While she is sent to prison, Amber by default becomes the Miss Mount Rose and then goes on to Miss Minnesota where she wins the title because everyone else got food poisoning from a shellfish buffet because, quote, I don't eat shellfish. Mom always says don't ever eat nothing that can carry its house around with it. Who knows where the last time it's been cleaned? She should know. She then gets crowned Miss Minnesota, goes to Nationals, and finds out that Nationals has been canceled because, surprise, Sarah Rose is a sham of a company and has been sued by the IRS for tax evasion. She goes back to Mount Rose and is later in in the midst of a standoff where Gladys has escaped prison and is trying to shoot people down, and a reporter covering the scene gets shot. Amber, quick with her composure, gets there, picks up the mic, starts covering the scene, and is then given the job that she has always wanted as the reason she entered this pageant was to leave Mount Rose and become like her idol, Diane Sawyer. I think I summarized it enough. Yeah, I love that her biggest goal was to just be like Diane Sawyer. I always thought it was like such a niche, odd goal. I'm like, not even Barbara Walters, Diane Sawyer. Diane Sawyer. Not like there's anything wrong with being Diane Sawyer at all. It always made me laugh from like a young age, (laughs) the specificity and simplicity of her goal. But how at every turn it almost seemed like she wouldn't get it. What I really love about this movie is it completely disabuses you of the notion that good things happen to good people and it's more close to real life in the sense that shit is random and success is conditional and if you are lucky you get what you want and you find success kind of accidentally there's a scene though where she's like you know she starts feeling bad about what's happened to her and how she's become miss fat rose and miss minnesota in the midst of all this stuff and then allison janney's character loretta is just like uh you know good things happen to good people and she's like really and she's like no you're just lucky as shit or something like that it's just perfectly i think she says like it's just dumb luck it's just dumb luck like it's it perfectly encapsulates the plot of this movie and what we get out of it yeah, and I also really liked the, I feel like the tone of this movie is also kind of similar to Heather's in the sense that there's a lot of, like, senseless random deaths, at least at first when, like, the movie's gonna get going, you right. kind of don't know what's happening. I mean, if you've never seen it before, obviously. So I found the tone to be really good as well, but I feel like the most interesting thing that happens in this movie plot-wise is that our villainous slash hero wins and you think all hope is lost and then she dies randomly and then her mom who is technically the only thing standing between amber and the crown that's rightfully hers immediately like admits guilt to all of the murders that she's committed and immediately is arrested and suffers like actual consequence and is in jail i and then i kind of feel like i love all the writing and i think it's a really great movie but i do think that this movie has third act problems because when she does go to nationals until like the food poisoning thing happens I, I just feel like it just like it kind of doesn't really go anywhere. 
yeah, it just kind of, it's a very quick resolution. Part of that, I think, is because as I was reading this article, Michael Patrick Jan was saying that he wanted to keep this movie to 90 minutes, so I think a lot was cut, and I almost wonder, they, they did uh, specify in that BuzzFeed article what had been cut, but I'm almost wondering if there were other parts that were cut that would have made this narrative look a little better towards the end because it is very very rushed well they are they reshot the ending because right. the ending was supposed to be the librarian who Iona was Hildebrand. yes who was like one of the original american teen princesses she goes on a shooting rampage and in this parking lot and accidentally a stray bullet hits the, it's still the same but the shooter is different and she was just really upset about how people were ruining the sanctity of the american teen princess title and apparently during test screenings not only did that ending get changed to Gladys, and also I felt like the first couple of times that I watched it, they kind of did a lot to make you wonder who it was anyway. Right. Because it wasn't until you kind of heard her talk, and because there's so much other stuff going on and you're like trying to parse out the scene to begin with, that you don't quite figure out who it is, or at least I didn't figure out the first time. Right. So it is interesting that they went back and changed that, but because of these, as a result of these test screenings, they went and like kind of changed the tone, and that's why I feel like the reception was kind of spotty because they were trying to please this audience, and all of a sudden the studio, which it's never good whenever a studio gets involved, they like don't know what to do. They see these right. like bad audience numbers, and so they're coming in and trying to tell you how to change the tone. They're kind of once you tug on a thread, sometimes the whole thing fucking unravels, and that's sort of what happens. But in spite of all of this, it's still a solid movie. Right. I think it still holds up to this day. Another thing that ended up really changing in the ending was that Kirstie Alley's character, Gladys, kills herself in prison. There was a scene where she's literally, you just see her her hands still holding. Like, ha- like you see part of her body hanging down. You see her and feet, finger, and there's a lit cigarette. A lit and cigarette that's still lit. Yeah. It's so that Apparently was- the audience audibly groaned. <laughs> Which, like, understandably so. I think I love that this movie has a dark tone, and I think it is one of those things where it's meant to be a handful of people's favorite movie versus, like, a general everyone somewhat likes this movie to an extent. Well, yeah, I feel like the director had some quote in that BuzzFeed article about how this was supposed to be for the goth girls that Clueless didn't speak to, but I love this movie, and I also love Clueless. They're just two different kinds of movies. But back to your point of... Clueless is the broad appeal, right. and Drop Dead Gorgeous is the niche appeal, but it still has some of like the same tone, and especially like the dialogue and the innuendos that are kind of like infused, and even some of like the slang, whether it's like California Beverly Hills Valley Girl slang versus like a Midwestern slang, which feels weird to say, but you know, using that backdrop to their biggest advantage. But I think they have a lot of overlap, more than I think the director gives it credit for. I agree. I think that um, the director, when he was being interviewed about that, like. I think the asshole kind of came out there because he was not probably smart enough to realize just how smart Clueless really is of a movie. No, he probably put it down because a woman did it. Exactly. And, like, justice for Amy Heckerling. I love her to pieces. Um, Obviously, I think he wanted to put that in that category. And it's, like, I think it's easy to say, like, for instance, that it's clear they wanted to market this movie. The uh, new line wanted to market this movie like the other teen comedies that were coming out that summer because it was 10 Things I Hate About You, She's All That, Never Been Kissed. These were all... 1999 movies we talked about a few episodes ago. And 10 Things also has a song moment. Right. But it's, and it was. (laughs) I'm sorry, I fully blanked on that Frankie Valley song for a second. I was like, can't take my eyes off. Thank you. you. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Um, Released the same year. What a coincidence. What a coincidence. But the thing is, like, honestly, it, it was never meant to be a teen comedy. And that's really what's sad is that it became packaged as that on top of all the edits and compromises that had to take place Um, and and it really is a movie that I'll go into this later when I talk about the history but because of the way you know it was packaged and whatnot just ultimately led to its demise so now that we've laid the general groundwork down for Drop Dead Gorgeous we're going to talk about some of this iconic cast truly a cast of all-stars i split it up into families because it is kind of a a montague capulet kind of situation between the atkins and the lehmans and then i have stuff on obviously amy adams who is a pageant contestant and some judge stuff only because the screenwriter was also jane kangas 
Jean Kangas. Jean, not Jane, yeah. sorry. <laughs> and the reason why is so fucked up. She wanted to play a candy striper in one of the hospital scenes, yeah. but she was told by that Pallone dickhead that she was too old to play a candy striper. So he's like, you can be Jean, who has no lines, so we don't have to pay you like we would have to pay a regular actor. And she's because she's uh, an extra. Yeah. yeah. How nice. What a what a wonderful experience for her. But back to the light. And by the light, I mean Kristen Dunst, who plays Amber Atkins. When Drop Dead Gorgeous came along, Kristen Dunst was in the process of moving away from her child actor past and into a more young adult, mature genre film. She was just in Virgin Suicides, where she had gone to Cannes to promote it. And she this was like the beginning of her career with Sofia Coppola. And after Drop Dead Gorgeous, Kristen Dunst will go on to star in another cult classic, Dick, uh, as in Richard Nixon, with another underrated cult comedy uh, starring Michelle Williams. But after Dick, she stars in a string of teen-geared hits like Bring It On, Whatever It Takes, which stars Ben Foster, a Scientologist who married Donna, Cisco of Let Me See That Thong fame, and my husband's personal doppelganger, Colin Hanks. Get over it. Yes, get over it. So she was in Bring It On, Whatever It Takes, and uh, Crazy Beautiful. Those were like her big teen hits. I remember Crazy Beautiful was like a huge deal. It was just like this romantic drama with this blue tint over it. Oh, and I just Jay Hernandez. Yes, yeah. such a crush. And just like cried when I watched it, even though like... In retrospect, it's a little cringy. But prior to Drop Dead Gorgeous, Kristen Dunst and Brittany Murphy had been in a TV movie together called The Devil's Arithmetic, directed by Donna Deutsch, who I'm 85% positive gave a talk to one of my film classes. It's about a 16-year-old American girl, which is Kristen Dunst's character, who has an apathetic view towards her Jewish family history and finds herself pulled back in time to 1941 to a small Polish village where Nazis have begun their genocidal propaganda. As I said, Kristen Dunst plays Hannah Stern, and uh, Brittany Murphy plays Reba. This is a lot like that movie, She Loves Me or I Love You Not, whatever it's called. It's like one with Claire Danes where she has, like, Jean Mahou plays her grandmother, and her grandmother was in the Holocaust. And, like, oh, I she, think I saw that in a history yeah, class. Yep. And she was, and Claire Danes' character had a relationship with a young, I want to say it's, it's Jude Law. And there are, like, other famous actors who are in this high school as well, but she's trying to learn about her family's Jewish history despite going to, like, a very waspy high school, but very similar plot line. Interesting. Yes. Yeah, that sounds vaguely familiar. Melissa Joan Hart auditioned for this role, but ended up getting cast in Drive Me Crazy before they could finalize the decision, which was another confused team rom-com. Truly head-scratching. I did not enjoy Drive Me Crazy. I did enjoy the music video and the song. The director, Jan, or whatever his name is, saw Kristen Dunst on an episode of Celebrity Teen Jeopardy, and that's ultimately what won her the role of Amber Atkins, because she came across as just a very regular teen, especially if if you look at her performance as Amber, like it, she's really like wide-eyed and innocent. Like the joke about smoking cigarettes after riding her tractor, the way that she yeah. delivers that of just not having a trace of an idea of what that could be alluding to, even though that you know that Kristen Dunst, the person, understands that joke. She's so good. I'm so glad she got her star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. I'm such a KD fan. I love Kirsten Dunst, but also more than anything, I think in this it works really well because she is one of those actresses who. She is a pretty actress, but she is not one of the ones who I would just be like, oh yeah, there's no way she is living in a small town in Minnesota. Like, she plays it well. She looks the part. They did a good job in making sure that she didn't wear a lot of makeup. The clothes she wore made sense. Like, I appreciate that like, her look was really well done. Her mom... Annette Atkins was played by Ellen Barkin. It was originally offered to Goldie Hawn, who turned it down, which I really cannot. I feel like Goldie Hawn's too upbeat. Yeah. And she's too clean. I know that sounds really weird. Not like Annette looks like she's dirty or anything like that, but I just feel like Ellen Barkin has no problem getting down in there and just being like, yeah. I don't know. There was something about the way that she carried off the character that felt very lived in. She did a great job looking like she had spent too much time in the tanning bed, which is right. exactly what you want for that role. You'd be led to believe by piecing together some of these retrospectives that came out a couple of years ago when people were looking for Drop Dead Gorgeous, people our age probably, were looking for Drop Dead Gorgeous online and unable to find it, so they did some retrospectives to probably maybe drum up and show the studio I believe it's New Line like there are people that are interested they do want to watch this please put this out somewhere but in all of the interviewing Ellen Barkin wasn't really a, I didn't see any interviews with her at all but you'd be led to believe the way that it was pieced together that Barkin and Kirstie Alley didn't really get along because there was no overlap in their shoot schedule yeah and I mean like and you'll probably go into this like hearing just reading the stuff I read on 
Kirstie Alley, it sounds like she got along with a couple of people there, and that's that's kind of She, it. weirdly enough, got along with Amy Adams, and I, I don't know who else. <laughs> um, the woman who plays her assistant sidekick. Oh, yeah, Mindy Sterling. Mindy Sterling. Who plays Frau in the Austin Powers movie. Right. This is a great character actress. But, yep. yeah, they got along. She got along with Amy Adams. And as far as I know, that's the end of the list. Anyway. Uh, Scientology shows up in this retrospective. Oh, just you. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord. Ellen Barkin was most recently before Drafted Gorgeous in Fear and Loathing. And she's <gasps> a pretty prolific act- actress. She's been yeah. in a ton of stuff. But most notably, the best part of her performance as Annette is her chemistry with Allison Janney. And her character of Loretta, their friendship is truly the saving grace. And they are currently reunited on screen in this awards season movie bait called Breaking News in Yuba County. I don't know what it's about, but I saw pictures of them at, I think it was Toronto. And they had captioned it with something about, like, something in the effect of, like, Trapped Gorgeous, Sisters Forever, or something to that effect. Which leads me to my favorite character, Allison Janney's Loretta, a.k.a. Most Smartest. By far, the gem of this movie the glue that holds it together. And let's be honest, this is the prototype for, as you like to say, lick my ass, Diane. She can do a triple. Yes. This is Janie's most recognized roles, which by the way, how dare West Wing CJ them, but whatever. As Emily just said, this also supports my theory, my quiet theory, well, I guess now it's broadcast to everybody, that Loretta is the basis of her portrayal of Lavana in I, Tanya. I think, it's. I feel like, you know, Levon is like the more Loretta's evil twin. Yes. Some would say. Who loves birds, which, gross. Yeah. She was on a supporting scene-stealing role at this point. She was in American Beauty as the plastic bag kid's mom. She was in 10 Things I Hate About You that came out in March of that year. And Drafted Gorgeous came out in July. After Drafted Gorgeous... Allison Janney has an uncredited role in a movie called The Debtors, and the only reason why that's interesting is because it was directed by Evie Quaid, who is married to Randy Quaid. And, oh, boy. Not allowed in the U.S., are they? Well, when I was in film school, (laughs) the Quaids blew through our school and roped in a friend of mine who was either about to graduate or who had just graduated, so, like, obviously we didn't know any better. They roped him in to edit... This movie, which is just, okay, I don't even know where to start. I will just get to the best part, which is, so my friend had been working on this movie, and he was like, dude, this is fucking weird. These people are really weird. They make me really uncomfortable. Like, they're always arguing. He's like, there's, like, shady shit going on that I don't know about. And, like, I can't take, they act like this footage can't, like, leave their building. And they're just, like, putting on all this pomp and circumstance. And not to mention that, and not for nothing, this fucking movie is really gross and weird. I was like, um, all right. So one day they're like, oh, we're going to screen a cut of this movie. And isn't it so cool? Like Randy Quaid's wife and it's Randy Quaid and it's going to be awesome. So me and a couple of friends are like, tight, we're going to get some Ayers Mindy pizza. We're going to watch this like cool cut. We're going to like talk to this director on tour. And it's going to be like, it's going to be great. I mean, it's Uncle Eddie. What's there not to like? So it's long shots at their former home in Marfar, Texas. And it's Randy Quaid in the nude reciting random Shakespeare. And it's just him naked in like different parts of their house he's like naked at one point and like is holding like a wig like a wig is like over his dick or like <laughs> it is all bad and like there's him in a there's him in a tub but oh you can totally God. see his dick the whole time and i will never forget we were so excited at the start we're like okay cool slow start deserts like tumbleweeds i get it tight tight symbolism understood film cinema no. Whatever. And then as the movie progresses and, like, Randy Quaid starts, like, losing his clothes and then, like, it's just his dick is hanging out. My friend that I was sharing the pizza with slowly closes the pizza box and looks at me and he's, like, not hungry anymore. <laughs> so I wonder, I would be dying to know what Alice and Janie's experience was with the Quaids because they are a fucking trip. Yes. Yes, they are. Alice and Janie was also in another underrated dark cult comedy, Nurse Betty, Justice for Renee Zellweger's career. Clearly, I had just watched that Judy trailer when I was (laughs) writing these notes. She got a standing ovation at Toronto. So excited. 
Uh, Janney ended up getting to audition for this movie thanks to the late, great Brittany Murphy, who was first cast as the contestant Lisa Swenson. They had just been together in A View from the Bridge on Broadway, and Brittany Murphy had recommended that Janney audition for this role. Janney would later forget that Amy Adams and her had starred together in Drop Dead Gorgeous when Amy Adams was a guest star on West Wing. Not like in a bad way, but she was eventually remembered her and was like, oh yeah, you! To be fair, they don't have any scenes They together. don't. They really don't. Allison Janney was not invited to the premiere, nor was she on the poster. And so, as you said earlier, one of the funnier lines, I mean, all of the funniest lines generally come from Janney's character, but the funniest one was one that she ad-libbed when the TV crew shows up to at Nationals and everybody's puking over balconies, and she stumbles out with the bartender. Oh, She's yeah. like, I got some! Apparently, she ad-libbed that line, so and, it was, and it was a big deal for her because she had never ad-libbed before, and it's just super weird, and she felt uncomfortable because she didn't know how to do it, and it's just really hard to picture Alice and Janie not being good at something, but whatever. She said it, so I'm just quoting her. Janie had a hand in establishing Loretta's look, and she was the one that really wanted, like, the over-the-top or- orange tan, which I think also kind of translated to Ellen Barkin's character, too, yeah. which is, like, if they're best friends, they should also kind of look alike. She really wanted, she insisted that, like, the face and, like, the neck color not match. And, like, she's the one that wanted to have, like, the bright blue eyeshadow and the bright red lipstick. Like and a just 70s Vegas t-shirt. Like, like a confused sense of glamour. Like, glamour filtered through, like, trailer park. It kind of reminds me a little bit of Amy Sedaris's Jerry Blank look. Like, a little bit. Can- just a little bit. A little bit. So, on to the Lehmans. Denise Richards, a.k.a. Rebecca Becky Ann Lehman. This is legit the height of... Denise Richards' career. She was just coming off of the momentum of Starship Troopers and Wild Things and was cast based off of her performance in Wild Things because the director thought that both characters, Becky Ann and her character in Wild Things, had the same personality, which is spoiled entitled Rich Girl Who Will Stop at Nothing to Get What She Wants. Immediately following Drop Dead Gorgeous, she would go on to play nuclear physicist named Dr. Christmas Jones. If we really think about it, this movie was also a precursor to the college admission scandal, but with, like, way more murder and real consequences, and not just, like, 14 days in jail consequences. And, and a lot less money. I mean, obviously, you... I, I looked at Denise Richards's IMDb. You know what happened to her in her personal life. She married Charlie Sheen. She had a hooker over for Thanksgiving. Those are also her words, because I watched her on Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, where she recounts... Her relationship with Charlie Sheen was such, like, an easy, breezy candor. I you I have no choice but to stand. She's the greatest. I love her. She's great in this movie. Give her more comedy roles. She's very, very funny and does not take herself seriously one bit. Now on to... I mean, I have a little bit in here. I think next to Kristen Dunst, Kirstie Alley is the biggest star in this movie, especially at this time. She, I think that she's the most famous person just because yeah. she had just been in Cheers for forever. It was Veronica's a huge... Closet. She was on Veronica's Closet at the same time as this was filming. Yeah. But we have Christy... Kirstie Alley, excuse me. I keep wanting to say Christy. Kirstie Alley as Gladys Lehman. As the pervy judge Matt Malloy recalled, Alley's first day on set, she walked up and said that she had just quit smoking, she's on a diet, and she just got her period, and she's not fucking kidding. <laughs> This role was originally offered to Sigourney Weaver, who I guarantee would not have shown up the first day to set like that. <laughs> Around the same time as Dr. Gorgeous, she had been in Deconstructing Harry, a barf Woody Allen joint. And Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
also for Richer or Poor, which for whatever reason I love that movie as a kid. I, I also did too. I also love Son in Law. Yeah. But I could rewatch Son in Law, which actually holds up, and I'm happy to say that. But I can't bring myself to watch rewatch for Richer or Poor because I hate Tim Allen. I hate Tim Allen, and basically they made that movie with Sarah Jessica Parker and Hugh Grant like five or six years ago. Do you hear about the Morgans? Like, or that movie is basically oh uh, right, 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 with Sudeikis and yeah. uh, Jennifer Aniston. Yeah. yeah. Christy Alley refused to do any wardrobe fittings prior to the movie, so they had to send all of her outfits to be tried on at the Scientology Celeb Center in L.A. As I said before, Barkin and Alley, who also don't share any scenes, but over the course of a two-week shooting period, they had zero overlap, and I am trying to start a feud between the two of them currently. Anyway, Fat Actress is a great show that was another underrated cult comedy classic and some of her best acting. Now on to some of the miscellaneous pageant contestants we have amy adams as leslie miller this is amy adams's big first role she was working in dinner theater in minnesota when she auditioned i really wanted it to be tony and tina's wedding but it's not it's like brigadoon and shit which sucks during filming kirstie alley is the one that encouraged her to move to los angeles where she would soon get the part on the fox tv adaptation of cruel intentions where she played sarah michelle geller's character Catherine. the first person that she told that she was moving to L.A. was the perv, Matt Malloy, at the premiere, and he was the one that said that she was had the biggest career in, ahead of her, even though she didn't have, like, a huge part. Between Alice and Janney and uh, Matt Malloy, everybody was like, yeah, we all knew she was going to be a huge star. She will go on to be nominated eight times for an Oscar, and yet... The Susan Lucci and of yet, the Oscars. We also have Brittany Murphy as Lisa Swenson. He's gay, Mom. He's gay! <laughs> This is my brother as Liza Minnelli. She is so Barbara. another. Her and Alice and Janney, I mean, I, I, it's so nice to know that she's the one that recommended her for the part because it's great. Yeah. Um, is this around um, Girl Interrupted for Brittany Murphy? No. I mean, Girl Interrupted comes after this movie. Okay. Okay. So she turned down the part of Cecile in Cruel Intentions for this. What? As I said, Old Millennials Cinematic Universe continues unabated. OMCU. And then she goes on to star in Girl Interrupted. Because Dr. Gorgeous had sold its international rights before the movie wrapped, they had to cast someone with quote-unquote global appeal. They casted a Japanese pop star, Seiko Matsuda, as Molly Hayward, the tall ginger who is adopted by a Japanese family. She plays her sister, who ultimately is a punchline in two of the only two scenes that she's in, and the only scene in which she actually speaks. I have to say, this is something that happens a lot, but very strange for this kind of movie to do, a, like, a cut like that. Like, a lot of action franchises, like, looking at Transformers, for example, there's an entire scene in, like, the or part of, like, one of the more recent Transformers movies where they go to China. The chi There's, like, a lot of Chinese characters, and, and it's clearly it was set there because they wanted to appeal to the Chinese market, and I feel like that was probably the Japanese market in the 90s was a much bigger market. But it's weird to have done it for such a, like, niche movie. Like, an action movie... I I totally get they make a ton of movie or a ton of money internationally but very strange for that kind of movie the screenwriter lona williams wanted a bunch of locals to play the main part so that people would be confused about whether or not it was a real documentary sort of like blair witch project but the studio was like no no no, that's a fucking terrible idea do not do that so the compromise was that they would get a bunch of locals as the extras so the small town in minnesota in which they shot they had a bunch of locals there so it had an authentic feel so this movie, as you said, was not critically well-received. That is true. It is rotten at 46%. But the audience has it at 78%, which feels right. I mean, I, my personal bias has it at a 90, even though I said that it has third-act problems. But, you know, of course, most first feature-length scripts do. Well, as we talked about, Lona Williams was the writer of this movie, and the reason why she wrote this movie was because the script is she was a frequent participant in beauty pageants growing up. And she was crowned Minnesota's Junior Miss in 1985 and was later the runner-up in the America's Junior Miss pageant. She won a scholarship. Much like Amber, she joined, She did all those pageants to try to get out of her small town, which is Rosemount, and that's what she based Mount Rose off of. She used that scholarship to go to the University of Minnesota, moved to California after a screenwriting professor had encouraged her to do that. She ends up becoming a writer and producer on The Drew Carey Show and then writes the script, which was originally titled Dairy Queens. During production of this movie, Dairy Queen threatened to sue, so they had to change it from Dairy Queens to Drop Dead Gorgeous, and that is why it is named that. One of the more interesting things about the casting of this movie, in addition to what you were saying, where they were, she was essentially shot down to cast complete unknowns for this project, 
the more outlier characters you have the adult characters in this movie were mostly seasoned actors who had been living in hollywood for years and other like famous character actors and then of course you have kirsten dunst denise richards and Brittany murphy but everyone else of the contestants were unknowns from the twin cities area and one of the quotes that I really loved in this BuzzFeed piece was how, like, Jan was talking, the director was talking about how he wanted to cast girls with authentic Midwestern eyebrows. Because this is, like, late 90s heyday of really pencil-thin, super sculpted eyebrows. And so making sure that he got that right in those outlier characters. Everybody there had, quote-unquote, Midwestern eyebrows. The other thing worth noting is that one of the other things they cut out of this movie was uh, the director... Michael Patrick Yan being a pervy janitor, a little bit like the character of Matt Malloy as the judge, but that was cut for time and because he was so insistent that the movie stay at a running time of, of 90 minutes. So as this movie is getting released, the one thing that everyone seemed to agree on in this oral history was, you know, the struggle with that getting released. Obviously they changed the ending and changed a bunch of other things. This was released in the midst of a bunch of teen movies, so it got marketed that way, which is probably the worst thing that this movie could have done. One of the other things worth noting is that having a studio like New Line release it was probably not a great idea. I hate to say it because, like, in the midst of all the Harvey Weinstein scandal, like, Miramax was clearly not a great place to work at it, and when it was around. But this would have been a vehicle, like, Miramax or a studio like Miramax would have been a much better vehicle for this. And they say this in this movie, or, or in this um, BuzzFeed article, that there were definite times where it was obvious that it could have been released by an indie film company and have been you know a big success totally far exceeded its expectations versus getting released by a new line cinema who that summer their big blockbuster was austin powers the spy who shagged me another movie mindy sterling's in and so for them that's where all their marketing went to after they had sold the international rights they didn't really care so they didn't put any money into it and as a result it had a really lackluster release it made $10.5 million at the box office. And what's really sad is on top of it not doing well in theaters, the reviews were really horrific, really just awful. Like um, Entertainment Weekly's Lisa Schwarzbaum gave it a D and had said, quote, Satire can withstand a lot of abuse before it wilts into mockery, especially when the subject is something as rich as a teen beauty pageant in Heartland America. A cheap cut glass tiara of a booby prize then goes to Drop Dead Gorgeous for messing up so utterly. And what's really interesting is, yeah, there was a series of critics who just really panned the movie. So, again, it didn't appeal to a mass audience, but I feel like in this day and age, and we've talked about this one-on-one, -on -one, if this movie had been released in 2019 versus 1999, this film would have been a dark horse for at least a Golden Globe, in my opinion. I also think that it suffered from confused marketing because the stu when the studio doesn't understand what your movie is about and right. they try to actively change the tone and your overall message is when you know there's going to be a huge disconnect and when you market it poorly critics come in with like a certain expectation and then when it doesn't live up to that they get pissed off there was a movie I, I forget what it ends up being called but there was a movie that came out or at least tried to called Slapper She's French that came out yes Yes. A couple of years after this that a friend's dad had worked on it. We had seen it. We loved it. We thought it was so fun. We went to, like, the premiere, and it was really similar in tone. It was, like, dark comedy, yep. really bleak. But then when it finally did come out, like, wait, like, years after we had seen it premiered. Like because ABC Family premiere. Yeah, the marketing around it was so confused. And then also the editing around it, you could tell they cut out huge chunks. Like, the things that made it a good movie and the things that made you want to watch it. I don't think that... Dropped Dead Gorgeous suffered from that. I think Dropped Dead Gorgeous kind of suffered a similar fate as I recently watched this, A Simple Favor, which is really good, but I remember the marketing being really fucking confusing. Right. Because I just couldn't tell what the tone was. I'm like, is this a comedy? I, I just didn't even know. And even though I thought that the beginning could have been sh shored up a little bit, it was still a really good movie once you got around to it. And I think that similar to Dropped Dead Gorgeous in some ways the studio that released it was maybe not the right fit. Right. And beyond that, I think it currently has more of like a cult following now that it's like released onto streaming. And I think that that's what's giving Drop Dead Gorgeous its second life again, or third life now almost. Yeah. Because I feel like it made, it sort of made its round like the slumber party circuit in a lot of ways, because I can't tell you how many times this was rented for a slumber party. I think it's, it's also for me, like their cult classics still exist to this day, but for to find one that had initially been a flop that only became 
that notable. I don't think you see that quite as much anymore because everything is so readily available for streaming. This really felt like one of the last movies that got through what a cult classic goes through, which is it's out of print for however many years. No one can find it. You only get to see it once in a while if someone has a VHS copy from 20 years ago or it's a screening at the local art house theater. If you're lucky, because I if don't lucky. think that those were very easy to come by either. Right. I remember they interviewed Peaches Christ, who's a local drag right, right, queen, right. for that BuzzFeed piece, and apparently that was one of the most requested movies that Peaches gets for the big screenings. Of- well, Peaches does, because I've been to a couple of these Peaches Christ shows where... Uh, Peaches dresses up. Well, they act out. They do, like, a truncated version with drag queens of Bring It On, of The Craft, of... They did Beetlejuice. They've done so many. I think they did a Mean Girls one recently, if I recall. Yes, I think that was with Kimchi. Mm -hmm. But anyway, um, yeah, that's... I I wouldn't be surprised because it's it's perfect for drag queens. Are you kidding me? It's a beauty pageant. It's great. With this release of this movie, obviously this really hurt Williams because she had tied so much of this movie to her own upbringing. Down to, like, the story, the the scene with the, the stepladders, that was something that she had to do during her nationals, her Miss Junior Nationals. They had a stepladder routine, which she called a, quote, fucking nightmare. But later... Well, that really came across. Yes. <laughs> and then she later will go on to write the movie Sugar and Spice that we know is Sugar and Spice, which was originally titled... Sugar and Spice and Semi-Automatics, which is, I, you know, remember enjoying this movie and seeing it when I was in middle school. It's a come to the post-Columbine censorship where anything that involved teenagers with guns was censored and cut. And so as a result, the integrity of her script was compromised and she actually ended up removing her name from the script and she is credited under a pseudonym, Mandy Nelson. And so that was really the end of a lot of Williams' career. I, looking at her credits since then, she's done, I think, a few indie movies here and there, but really hasn't done much, which is unfortunate because I think she's actually someone who would benefit from 20 years later, yep. right, penning a script like Sugar and Spice or Drop Dead Gorgeous. And you look at Sugar and Spice, like the people who are in it were great, like Mina Savari's in that movie, James Marsden plays the boyfriend, Marley Shelton, who shows up in Never Been Kissed and a bunch of other things. Just a lot of really good kind of players. And even the former pageant winner from the year before who's uh, being treated for anorexia, she's in Sugar and Spice as well. Oh. And I'm forgetting what the actress's name is, but she's great too. But again, this was a movie that, because of how production companies worked back then, and it was very much like major studios just didn't know how to handle indies. This movie suffered quite a bit and was also a flop. In terms of, however, over time, this movie started getting its cult classic status as people kept seeing it through, you know, Cinemax reruns or VHS tapes or that initial DVD release that happened once on a, you know, DVD that has like no features whatsoever. (laughs) During that BuzzFeed piece that was published on this movie, the author had checked to see what the price, you know, what it was being sold for on Amazon. I believe all that could be really found was an out of print DVD for $60. And that, for me, was just, like, kind of amazing that, you know, again, in this day and age, something was not available to stream very easily. And it went through because of New Line and, I think, acquisitions and whatnot. But it's also sort of, like, what's about to happen with all of the old Fox properties that right. Disney now owns. Oh, like Anastasia and, like, all well, those. Well, it's not even shit like that. It's, like, things that art house theaters like to do second, third artsy nights of like a fear and loathing or anything like that or like a fight club or something like that it's not going to be as easy to deal with that anymore and that's why you shouldn't have one company hold the rights to so much shit no no and i wonder what that will look like now that everything is streaming and acquisitions are happening left and right i really do wonder what those contracts and rights and things will look like in the future because yeah you can't really live by that anymore the other thing is like i said earlier it's interesting i think that cult classics still come about um you know i think there are a few movies here and there. yeah like, but i think they're more intentionally made now exactly there's more intention knowing that oh and i think there's a team at these various studios who are like this movie is not going to make us six figures but it'll make us a decent amount of money and it's going to have a great life on netflix and other streaming platforms sure Is that all you have for Drop Dead Gorgeous? That is all I have. Great. We probably could have just done a Drop Dead Gorgeous episode. Probably. But luckily, we don't have a ton on Best in Show because Best in Show, 
For all the problems in production for Drop Dead Gorgeous, Best in Show has none. No. <laughs> As it's like the most, I mean, I know that only Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hare are like the Canadians, but it is a very Canadian set where they're just like, yeah, everyone's like a professional and they got along great and they're all friends and it's fine. I... <laughs> so it's truly bizarre. And I mean, obviously, Christopher, a lot of it comes with Christopher Guest being a more established person as first as an actor and then later as a director and he had already done Waiting for Guffman and his process is very different and it's unique to him in a lot of ways so it's not something that can be replicated but obviously things don't go wrong for him to the point where like he has to burn it all down and can never make a fucking movie again it's not like that for him so his process is long and drawn out sure but he is very consistent (laughs) I equate the Christopher Guest universe to being like a company that takes the culture fit stuff very seriously. Like they're, the but actors, not, I just think that not, he not, just like works with his friends all the no, time. No, That's no. literally all it is. When I say seriously, I mean that in the sense of like, there, there is some sort of like thought of this person is a great person. We, I'm friends with them. They're great to work with. I'm going to keep bringing them back into these movies. Of course. And, then, and that's how casting Or at least especially when you're like an auteur type, which I'm sure he resents me saying that because I don't think that Christopher Guest thinks of himself in that way. But he has a style unique to himself. And Best in Show is 98% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes and it has an 89% audience score, which both of those things feel right. Best in Show follows a bunch of eccentric contenders for a blue ribbon in a fictional dog show called the Mayflower Dog Show. And Christopher Guest, like most of his ideas, because we both saw him talk when uh, Mascots was released a couple of years ago, his process is he's, whatever he writes about is something that he's directly seen with his own eyeballs. And so in this instance with Best in Show, he came up with the idea because he kept taking his two dogs to the dog park. And as somebody who has taken their dog to a dog park, I've definitely met some Best in Show-esque characters. And so I can totally see, especially if he's taking them out in somewhere in New York or LA or literally anywhere, I think. Of course, he was going to be inspired. Uh, Christopher Guest described the owners of the dogs in the dog park like parents watching and talking about their children, which is very true. Yeah. So one day in 1998, Christopher Guest called Eugene Levy, what a sentence, with an idea that he'd been toying around for four years. It was an, an improv comedy set in the world of dog shows. Levy, who was also in Waiting for Guffman and was about to shoot American Pie, says that they had been searching for another vehicle for them to work on together where Eugene Levy could have, like, you know, another supporting star role, and they wanted to do, like, another mockumentary improvised movie together. But when he called Eugene, he said no because Eugene Levy could not imagine making a dog show funny. He thought the whole third act hinging on this dog show was, like, a horrible idea, and he was just like, they're really stale, and I don't really understand the humor. But eventually he wore him down, and, I mean, it was more of more research, essentially, that changed his mind. Because, like, they first, it started with the dog park, and then he started going to dog shows. And then he went to Westminster Dog Show in New York. And that, obviously, is the basis for the Mayflower Dog Show. And subsequently, after he convinced Levy through going through these regional dog shows, he, by the way, shares a writer credit with Eugene Levy for this movie. They created a 15-page outline, obviously leaving a majority of the room for improvisation, similar to Waiting for Guffman. The outline is just a blueprint for the actors so that they know how to get from point A to point B, but how they do it is completely up to them. So I'm going to go into the cast and just kind of give you a little bit by group by dog and couple. So our cast includes the couple Gary and Cookie Fleck, who are played by Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara so beautifully. Their dog is Winky, who's a Norwich Terrier. Leading up to the show, we are introduced to this couple, and in true Christopher Guest fashion, Eugene Levy has a birth defect in this movie as well. He has two left feet, which prohibits him from being the walker normally with Winky in the dog shows. That's usually Catherine O'Hara's job. This will ultimately end up being Catherine O'Hara gets injured during the big show, and it's up to Eugene Levy and his two left feet to walk the dog into what ends up being an award-winning show at the dog show as they get placed first. After the show, they begin a recording career by releasing songs such as God Loves a Terrier. The other couples include Meg and Hamilton Swan, who are portrayed by Parker Posey and Michael Hitchcock. Their dog is Beatrice the Weimaraner, and in their character development that I found was fascinating was that they had originally cast a pointer to be the couple's dog in this movie, but they had to fire a couple of dogs in this movie (laughs) because of their bad behavior. (laughs) 
And as a result, this led to Posey and Hitchcock making changes to their characters' identities. They decided that when their characters had a pointer as their dog, they decided that their characters shopped at J, at J. Crew. And when they had to change the dog to a Weimaraner, they switched over to being shoppers of Banana Republic. And that is subtle, but beautiful. Posey and Hitchcock would hang out at Starbucks to talk about their characters and the couple's dynamic, but also to get into character because that's literally how the characters meet each other, but at different Starbucks. At a Starbucks. I saw you <laughs> across the street. I was in a Starbucks, and you were at, in a different Starbucks. They get the yuppie, the late 90s yuppie image down to a T, including allowing them to work with the set designer. They were going through sharper image and front gate catalogs to work on the design set design of their home. Obviously, problems in their uptight marriage are clearly affecting the dog, who is really badly behaved because the parents are so neurotic and uptight. They actually take the dog to see a therapist after the dog sees them have sex. And ultimately, their dog, Beatrice, gets disqualified from the uh, show for bad behavior. The other two major contestant groups are Harlan Pe Pepper, played by, of course, Christopher Guest, the director. His dog is Hubert, who is a bloodhound. Harlan Pepper is an outsider in this competition world, in a world of really uptight couples. He's just a guy who comes from several generations of people who've raised bloodhounds. He's also an aspiring ventriloquist and can name any type of nut. Finally, we have Sherry Ann Cabot. Oh, we have two other couples. Sherry Ann Cabot, played by Jennifer Coolidge, and her much older husband, Leslie Ward Cabot, played by Patrick Crenshaw, along with their trainer, Christy Cummings, played by Jane Lynch. Their dog is Rhapsody in White, who is a standard poodle and is otherwise known as Butch. Sherry Ann and Leslie are- Love soup. <laughs> they love soup. They love soup. Sherry Ann and Leslie are in a trophy wife sugar daddy type marriage that's not really a partnership as it is so much as it is a way for Sherry Ann to pursue her hobbies and that she is we find out that she is actually in a relationship with Christy the dog trainer. I mean Je uh, Jennifer Coolidge based her character on Anna Nicole Smith so. She based it on Anna Nicole Smith and also a woman that she used to babysit for when mm. she first moved to LA in Beverly Hills who said she was quote very feminine very phony type of woman. What's hilarious, though, is Coolidge not only nails this, but brings this character into a lot of her other movies, including <laughs> A Cinderella Story starring Hilary Duff. She and plays... American Pie. Oh, yeah, of course. Stifler's mom. Yeah, um, which also stars Eugene, Eugene Levy. Eugene Levy. Well done. Six degrees of Eugene Levy. Jane Lynch, this was actually her first big role after she had met guests while filming a Frosted Flakes commercial. This was her first major on-screen role that ended up changing her career and her life. She said that it was another one of those happy accidents that could have she could have never planned for, and it changed her life. The other final couple in this group is Scott Donlin and Stefan Vanderhoof, who are played by John Michael Higgins and the great Michael McKean. Their dog is Miss Agnes, who is a Shih Tzu, and they're just a very campy gay couple who like to uh, dress up um, Miss Agnes in various costumes and love referencing old musicals and movies. And then rounding out the cast are Trevor Beckwith, played by Jim Piddick, who is the dog expert in the color commentary. And then Fred Willard as Buck Laughlin, <laughs> who just doesn't know what he's talking about, but is there for the ride. And found out that Jim Piddick had to read all the official American Kennel dog books, which are just like the most dry material ever, and in order to become this expert for this movie. The other thing, final thing from a casting perspective, are the actual real names of the dogs that are used in this film. I just, I have to point them out. So the names of these dogs are Beatrice the Weimaraner is in fact played by Echo Bar Take Me Dancing. I fucking hate dog kennel club names. They're always absolutely unhinged names. Like, this is not a dog's name. A dog's name is like Sparky or Guy. It's not like... Echo Park, whatever the fuck you just said to me. It's it's racing, Echo Park. racing, racing horses and show dogs have the most ridiculous. Okay, things. at least like race horses, I understand. Like they're race horses, whatever. Dogs though, they're pets. So they actually have call names, which I didn't realize. So for instance, Echo Star. Well, no. So Echo Bar, take me dancing. Fucking kill me. The call name is Peach. Um, what the fuck? <laughs> Why does this dog have ninety eight names? Winky, the Norwich Terrier, was in fact Urchin's. Brillo. What? Or excuse me, that's their owner is Urchin. Urchin the owner's the, name is Urchin? Yeah, so here's how they're listed is that... Just the dog name. I can yeah, only handle me. one... Brillo. One insane name at Hubert, a time. the bloodhound was Stand By Me. What the fuck? That's not a dog's <laughs> Miss, name. Miss Agnes was classic. Tyrone, I believe uh, the original Shih Tzu, was Cimarron's Red Hot Kisses. And then finally... Ew, what? Ew, Rhapsody what? Rhapsody in White was named... Desi does it with pizzazz. 
Ew! The last two are definite dick jokes. That's disgusting. All y'all should be fucking ashamed of yourself. But given the characters in this movie, are you surprised that these owners in real life would in fact name their dogs such as Okay, as somebody who worked, whose first feature film was a movie about dog dancing, and no, it was not a Christopher Guest mockumentary. It was a real life movie. So having to deal with a dog trainer who is an incredibly serious woman who I would later watch on an episode of Below Deck regular make a complete fucking drunk fool of herself with her dog and then also be one of those people that's like, I need you to make my dog compass, which is spelled with a K, which is fucking dumb. Anyway, dog trainer people are really annoying. I mean, also, like, some dog people are also super annoying. I think there's... And I say this as someone who has a dog that I am obsessed with. I did not always enjoy Amy Schumer's show, Inside Amy Schumer, but there was one skit that was true to form with sketch, dog owners. Sketch, it's a sketch, it's a sketch. sketch. Excuse me. <laughs> a sketch. <laughs> Where she talks about, it's a group of women who all adopted dogs and talk, the way they talk about them, like, I didn't rescue him, he rescued me, a la, like, Sandra Bullock in that movie, what, The while, Blind Side. Oh, it was like, while you were sleeping? <laughs> no. <laughs> Just the way they talk about adopting these dogs. Oh, yeah. I mean, I do like, I do love to watch the Westminster Dog Show. It is crazy. It the is. way that everybody treats it and the way that they just, like, manhandle these dogs. Like, like he's got a good gait, got to check his tail, got to check his butt. You're like, what the fuck? Just whatever. My dog doesn't even like going to the fucking groomers. I, like, don't know what you people are doing. <clears throat> Best in Show was shot entirely on location in Vancouver and in L.A., they assembled a cast of 100 actors, including 20 principal roles, obviously, and mostly dogs, their owners, their handlers, dog show coordinators, animal trainers, and a professional film crew, so topping it out. All of that, plus 100 actors, 140, so you had about 200, or yeah, 240 people on set at any given time doing something, because that's what happens. Well, they there's like an old adage in Hollywood where you'd never work with children and you never work with dogs and they worked with dogs but everybody again had a really positive experience it was a lot they in a bunch of interviews and in like an old production note one sheet that I found they all talk about how it was like a lot a lot of moving parts are happening there are lots of extra people on set it wasn't like waiting for Guffman where it was just sort of like a more intimate experience but Mostly, it was fine. Like, the craziest thing that they did, they shot Fred Willard and Jim Piddick's, all of their scenes, all of their dog commentating scenes over the course of, like, two days, like, in a row, no stopping, which is kind of insane. But other than that, it sounds like everything kind of went off without a hitch. As filming continued, the group of actors were having a great time. They were spending time, they were spending time together off of set. They hung out all the time. They sang Christmas songs together, which I kept in there because I was like, wow, that's... That's adorable. That's really cute. Like, this is a Canadian set. The Mayflower Dog Show itself, which is the climax of the movie, was filmed over a period of five days in a large auditorium. Obviously, the Westminster Dog Show, or any dog show for that matter, would not allow them to film any part of it whatsoever. So they had to recreate everything, and so they didn't skimp at all. They recreated everything from the exhibition booths to the dog-themed vests, t-shirts, mugs, china, tapestry, dog food, gourmet dog food, and they even offered chiropractic services to the dogs. Meanwhile, the auditorium filled with a bunch of audience extras and dog show participants wearing evening wear and judges, of course. And so it really kind of gave it like this feel of like it's a real dog show. And the improvisers, they said in a couple of interviews, they were really sort of feeding off of the energy from the crowd. And it just sort of it like they had all done their research. They're like, it's really it feels really real. And that's why so many of the scenes feel very real because they were very in it and very present. By the time filming was over, many of the actors actually ended up becoming really proficient in, like, dog training. That's amazing. And nearly everybody agreed that it was an educational experience, (laughs) which I thought was really funny. Christopher Guest took eight months to edit the film together into an 89-minute coherent film. A lot of the takes that were used were all first takes, but because of the nature of shooting a mostly improvised mockumentary, you kind of got to just, like, let the camera go. So in a lot of ways, you are editing it as if it were a real documentary. You just have, like, tons of hours of footage, and you just have to wade through it. Speaking of footage, this was shot on super 16-millimeter film with a handheld camera, which... Of course, in, like, dog shows, they do have a handheld camera. Well, now it's probably a steady cam running alongside of the dog so that you can get all the shots. So they had that real-world dog show feel. It ended up grossing $20 million worldwide on a $10 million budget. 
and that was very impressive to me. And even though this was sort of re- this was released through a more major studio, which I didn't write it down, but I think it was Warner Brothers. Be- Warner Brothers did it the smart way. They did the opposite of what New Line ended up doing to Drafted Gorgeous. They did the, the thing that they do now, which is they started out small. They released it to uh, 13 theaters, I believe, was like the first run. And then it ended up making like $40,000 or, or more. And when Warner Brothers noticed that there was more of an interest, they rolled it out steadily, and that's how it ended up making back its money and then some. And it also didn't hurt that it was very well received critically, and also Christopher Guest had a track record even before Waiting for Guffman as being like a funny, smart person that you could trust make a good movie between Spinal Tap and also him being in Princess Bride. Anyway, I think... We've said all we need to say about these quote mockumentaries, which, yeah, I think we'll do another 1999-2000-2001 retrospective of certain films. I don't know what yet, but Dance something movies, soon. Maybe. Ooh, yeah, that is on our list, huh? It is. Save the last dance. Center stage. Of course, yeah, that's on our list of stuff. Yep. Well, thanks for listening to Old Millennials. You can follow us on Instagram at the Old Millennials Pod. Same with Facebook. We are at the Old Millennials Pod there as well. You can follow us individually on Twitter. I am at Marge, she wrote. And I'm at Emily A. Beijing. And if you want to email us anything, we've got an email. Oldmillennialspod at gmail.com. Uh, and you can also DM us on Instagram. Everybody, everybody seems to figure that one out quite easily. And if you have enjoyed this podcast and any other podcasts, uh, please share with a friend. And please subscribe and rate and review And that's all of the begging that I'm going to be doing. And until next time, bye. Bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.